In Matthew chapter 16, and you'll, if you'll turn there, one of the most amazing questions is asked of his disciples. You and I, as we continue our deep dive, we come to week number two. It's titled Christology, which really is nothing more than the study of the anointed one. Christ is a, a word that's translated anointed one. Jesus Christ is Jesus the anointed one. And so it's a study of that. And so today we're launching into another week of study and understanding. It seems very timely that you and I would be here in Matthew 16 looking at a question that Jesus asks his disciples that I believe he asks us. I've been following the what they're calling revival. I'm not sure if that's the name yet for it. But in Ashbury University, if you don't know the area across the street is the seminary. I'm well acquainted with that seminary. That's part of my tradition, my background when I first became a believer was in the Wesleyan holiness movement of which that is part. Matter of fact, one of the professors, Siemens, I've <clears throat> been able to read some of his stuff. I I knew actually his brother way back, David, and he was one of my mentors, and he was a teacher from... So I, I'm, well, I'm well acquainted with this college and what's going on. I find it interesting that they're answering the question that we're going to remind ourselves of and perhaps look at our answer, but I'm so impressed with what's going on. I'm hopeful, like maybe some of you, that this may be the spark that's going to go all across the United States. I'll let you know when it gets there. But I do want you to hear something, and I know from, I've, done a, I've tried to read as much as I can. As a matter of fact, uh, Steve Siemens had written this, and I was impressed with it. He says, don't make the mistake that this is a, just a sudden thing. It's an unplanned move of God. February 8th, a whole bunch of individuals, students at the chapel decided we're going to keep worshiping God. And it hasn't stopped as, I believe, even at this moment, they're worshiping God. And so now it's continued for 11 days. Who knows? And, and all from, I was looking at the names of all the different colleges that are converging right now and, and things that are happening elsewhere as well. But here's what he wrote. We've been praying years for this. We have been praying years for this. Remember what I said last week? Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. That reflects to the church today. That may be one of the big things that we need to understand is God's call to pray. We all want a great move of God, but a great move of God is going to happen because we choose to pray and ask God. Some of us have been praying a long time for a great move of God here on this peninsula. I have no doubt that God can do a great thing here. Why not here? Kentucky, on the Kitsap Peninsula, Seattle, Los Angeles, Maryland, doesn't matter. It can happen anywhere. Can you say amen to that? And why not everywhere? Well, perhaps 
today's study, which just is so well connected, especially for me, when I, I had not, when I put this together and was organizing everything, I had no idea that Kentucky was going to happen. But it seems very timely that we're looking at Matthew 16, verse 13. Because Jesus is, has come to a region of Caesarea Philippi. And he asks his questions. He asked his disciples a question. I want you to stop and I want you to understand that this question that he's about to ask is a let me save your life question. Because this question is a life-saving question. A eternal life-saving question. It's a question that the answer is going to make a difference for your forever. So the question simply, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who is it, as he looks at the disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? I thought it was interesting because I hear Jesus asking them the question directly. And they're, they're responding back to what they hear a lot of other people are saying. And so they answer the question, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. But then he said, okay, I appreciate that, but let me get to the really big question. Who do you say that I am? See, I think that's something that's critical for us to understand because... Who do you say? Jesus wants to know what we think, what we believe, and what's inside of us, far more than what everyone else is saying. The church today is becoming overly concerned about what everyone else is saying, rather than what we understand for ourselves. There is a, there is a, a paradigm shift that needs to happen, because what those others are saying, well, that's nice, but it really shouldn't matter. And I think that's part of the problem. It matters too much to the church today, what other people are saying about Jesus. If I were you, I would underline, put in bold and circle, who do you say that I am? Now I want you to understand that that's a huge question. We all have to answer this question because the answer to this question is what's going to save you forever. How you answer this question is going to change your today right now. Now, what, what Jesus is saying, and it's, it's noteworthy. I've, I've talked about this before. They're in Caesarea Philippi, and they're in a place known today as Banyas. This is a place I've been to. Some of you have been to Israel with me. You have stood in this place. You've seen the water. Some of you are headed to Israel. You are going to be in that place. You will see what we're talking about. And it's, it's an amazing, really it's a place where it's the beginning of the Jordan River. Because out of Mount Hermon, I won't give you a lot of geography here, but simply, no, Mount Hermon out of that mountain flows water that is identified as living water that flows literally from that stream into the Jordan River, providing life to all of God's people. 
Now, Jesus took his disciples to this water spring. I want you to understand something. He took them there on the eve of his going to the cross. So what's, you're about to give up your life. What's the last thing you want to do? Well, he wants to hang out with the disciples. That's, that's, of course, that makes sense. But why did he take his disciples here? I want you to, I've, I've talked about this before. I want to re- review or teach some of you how important it is location. Jesus did not go there by accident. It wasn't like there was no other place he could go. He went to this place, and I want you to understand and imagine this place because if you look at it, you can see the, the cutout in the, in the rock wall there. Those cutouts were originally places where statues of Greek and Roman gods were placed. This was a place of worship to Baal. The god of Pan probably was predominant in Lee's cutouts as well as some other gods. You see, this place was known, interestingly enough, at the time that Jesus was there as a place of great immorality. This was a place where if we went there today, they would check your ID and you had to be 18 years or older in order to get in there. It was X-rated. This was a place where they practiced prostitution in the name of worship. This was a place where they had previously practiced sacrifice of human beings, notably children. This was a place where they had done horrible things, evil practices, all at the foot of Mount Hermon. Jesus takes his disciples to this place. Now, it wasn't happening at the time Jesus was there, but it was known as that place. Everyone knew, the disciples were saying, I can imagine them kind of muttering to themselves, what are we doing here? Why are we here? Why are we not at the temple? Why are we not in front of the ark? Why are, not, why are we not going through the holy place into the holy of holies? I think that would have been a perfect moment for God to just tore apart the, uh, you know, the curtains there and, and then put them back together so he could tear them apart again at his resurrection. Yeah, you know, you can do it as many times as you want. But I want you, do you see, in, can, can you understand in your mind, this is, not a, this, is, this is a place that has a reputation. And of all the places he could have taken his disciples, he takes them there. I believe the answer to his question, who do you say that I am, is a defining moment for all of us. Because this is a question not just to them, the disciples, it's a question to you. Who do you say Jesus is right now today? I don't, I'm not interested in having you tell me what he used to be or what he was in your childhood or what he was a year ago. The answer to this question needs to be present tense right now today. Who is Jesus today in your life? Not what he's going to be or what you hope he's going to be, God wants this answer. This language is in the present tense. He wants to know where you are right now. I believe that's a critical, defining moment that we answer throughout our lifetime. This ought to be a question we ask ourselves regularly. Who is Jesus Christ right now in my life? 
Because your answer is going to determine how you spend your money, your time, how you love, how you make plans. It's going to change how you talk, how you feel, the way you think. It's going to change who you hang out with. If you're trying to figure out who you're supposed to marry, it will define that. If you're looking at who should be the friends of your life, it will guide you. The answer changes all of that. It changes the way you handle life's pain and suffering, as well as his joy and his peace, everything. So, verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is a mouthful. That was a huge moment. This week we're going to study more about who Jesus is, the Son of the living, underlying circle God. This isn't a dead God. This isn't a sleeping God. This is a living God, an alive, real. That's why it's present tense. And Jesus answered and said, and blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. See, whenever Jesus pronounces your whole name, Something's about to happen. Every now and then I hear from God, and he says, Stephen, Mark, Wexler. I feel like I'm hearing my mom or dad at that moment. For flesh and blood did, uh, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Wow. We talked about our Father last week. Now look what it says, next sentence. And I also say to you, Simon Bar-Jonah, you are Peter. You are Petros. He's speaking, he would, would have said this in the Greek. You are Petros. And on this Petra, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, you've got to understand the lay of the land. You see that cave in that picture? That in this spot was known as the place of hell. In Baal worship, they actually believed that the God of Baal would go into that cave. And that was the entrance where he would then move down into hell. They believed that he usually went there in the winter and came out in the summer. The devil is a snowbird. Jesus is there making this statement. You've got to get this. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's looking right there at that moment. He's looking at that cave because everyone was, knew the practice of Baal. They understood what was going on. They would have noted that cave and said, yeah. Because now he's talking about something. And there's a whole other message there. But he's standing there. On what, this is the part I want you to get today. He's standing there on this large rock foundation. And he says to his disciples, on this really large rock that you're standing on, on this pet, Petra, A-R-A, Petra, on this large rock, I'm going to take you, Peter, and disciples, you Petros, smaller rocks, and I'm going to build my church. 
Now, you got to get this. If you can imagine, because the rock, I stood there, was as large as this room. And there, with the water running, the living water flowing from Mount Hermon, going down to the Jordan, on this large rock, the disciples are there. And he says, on this large rock, I'm going to use you, smaller rocks, to build my church in the middle of all this evil. In the middle of all this past and history and reputation, I am going to build my church right there. You know what? We're standing on, our, we're standing on some mountain foundation right now. And on this foundation, Jesus is going to build and is building his church with you that are the stones and the rocks that's going to minister to this peninsula. Can you say amen to that? And beyond. I want you to get that identity to realize every one of you has this amazing purpose and message and need to have this understanding of who you should be jumping for joy right now. In the middle of all that surrounds us, God says, I will give you the power and the strength to minister my grace, my redemption, my salvation, and I'm going to use you who have chosen to follow me. And that's what he's saying to Peter and the disciples. I mean, he's saying, listen, hell's going to try to come against you, but it won't win. Can you say amen to that? I think it's pretty amazing that God says, don't build a church away from where it's really ugly. Build it in the middle of all the ugliness and the sin, because that's where the greatest need is. I believe that's what God's called us to do. We are not building a church that is comfortable or easy or where you just sit in a nice padded chair and get to go home after maybe 90 minutes. We're building a place that sends us out, that goes into the community, that feeds the community, that serves the community, that brings the message of Jesus to the world around us. We go to Guatemala. We go to Israel. We go to the Philippines. We go to Russia. We go to these places to bring the message of Jesus because that's what we're called to do. Now you're wondering, well, how is it that I am a rock or a stone? First Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a, what's that? Spiritual house. To be what? A holy priesthood. You see, God's original plan was that the nation of Israel would be priests. But they sort of messed up. That's the Reader's Digest version. And he said, okay, Levitical tribe, you'll be the priests now. They sort of messed up too, but they were the priests. And now after that, if you will, dispensation that took place, God, what God said, he, he said, we're not done. And now the church has come, and we are the priests. We are to function in a way that God's word has instructed. Now, that's a whole other story, which we'll get into later, not today. But I want you to understand, 
You are a, pre- a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now it goes on. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You ought to read this verse for homework at least once every day. Because look at all that it says. If you're wondering who you are, you're special. God knows you, sees you. You are not invisible to God. You see, Jesus, we're going to understand who he is. He's the creator of the entire, of the universe, of everything. See, a lot of times we get this we make this mistake thinking, oh, that's the Father. No, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are all one. So if you're wondering about Jesus, the, the answer is he wasn't a great religious teacher. He wasn't one of many gods who gives us spiritual enlightenment. He wasn't one that comes to bless us with a good life and help us to live well. He is the creator of all things. He is God Almighty. Can you see that? Yeah. The church has to get back to that truth because I think it's walked a little bit away from that truth. Because I'm convinced today the church, the world, they're doing everything they can to manage the image of Jesus. Think about that. To have him be a God that they can control. See, I believe right now the world's trying to create a Jesus that fits into our lifestyle, our values, our ethics. Let me be very clear. We're trying to create a Jesus that just tastes better than, than, what, than what we read in the word. This may not taste, even though it says this word is like honey. We don't want the conflict. So what happens is we start doing image control and redesign and recreate Jesus in what we believe he should be. I I think it's interesting. We have been created in the image of God. And now we're doing and returning the favor by trying to create God in our image. Now let me tell you where that road leads. Death bad idea. But we're doing it. Look around at how we do it. It is one of the dangerous things that we do with our change in values and all the things we're going to see in a moment that we have, we're doing everything we can to embrace a society and a culture that essentially wants to reimagine Jesus in their image as opposed to the image of the Word of God. So here's where I'm going with the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of social change or the Jesus of of enlightenment or the Jesus of... You see, here's the thing I've learned. The Jesus of the Bible never, ever will be reduced. He cannot be boxed in. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be explained or explained away. He is the creator of the universe, and he is the Lord of all.
I appreciate that, that amen, because I'm convinced that our view of Jesus has absolute direct consequences on how we live our life. I've done this for a while now. I know this to be true. See, if we can understand and grasp that he is the king of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and see him for who he is rather than how we see him in our image, listen, here's what the word of God's telling us. Jesus always is, always was, and always will be the supreme creator and ruler of the universe because he created everything. Let me read Colossians 1.15. Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. Up to this point, we did not have a visible image. So God said, I want you to get this. I love you so much, I am going to send myself to planet Earth and take on human form. I'm going to actually go from the very beginning. The conception by way of the Holy Spirit, which is a different type of conception, immaculate conception, that would bring about a human baby and yet a divine baby. That would go through all the stages of life right to the cross and there die for you. Take on the sins for you. And then conquer death and hell. And then rise out of the tomb. Later to be ascended into heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. See, he existed before God made anything at all. Oy vey. How, how, how was it that we linear human beings in creation, I don't even understand that. He, he existed before God made anything? I mean, if anything didn't exist, how do you exist? I am not going to try to figure that one out. He is supreme over all creation. Christ is the one through whom God created everything on heaven and earth. Everything, everything, nothing, everything, <laughs> nothing's left out has been, created through, uh, has been created through him and for him. He existed before everything else began, and he holds all of creation together. See, when you've got God surrounding you and holding you, that's how we keep it together. You don't want God ever to do this. The day that happens, we're in trouble. God puts his hand around us and keeps it together. Can you say amen to that? Isaiah challenges us, and you can read this later, but in Isaiah 40, a bunch of questions are asked. Who has measured the oceans in the palm of his hand? Let me tell you, not us. Who has used his hand to measure the sky? Not us. Who has used a bowl to measure all the dust of the earth? And mind you, this was a small bowl. Who has used scales to weigh the mountains and the hills? Who has, who, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who is able to give the Lord advice? 
See, right now there's a lot of people on planet Earth that are giving God advice. Whom did the Lord ask for? Has God asked you for help? Has he come to you and said, Steve, I need some advice. Could I schedule an appointment to see you? I want you to know that has not happened. Now, he may have scheduled an appointment to see me, but for very different reasons. <laughs> Here's what it says after all those questions. And I love this. The nations are like one small drop drop in a bucket. (laughs) The United States is a drop in the bucket. Kitsap Peninsula is a quarter of a drop (laughs) in the bucket. You know, it's interesting when you begin to understand this, how great, the point of this is how great and awesome and mighty is our God. The creator of all things, Jesus, Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus has always been. Some people, I was talking to someone, let me make sure you understand your theology. God the Father did not create Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son has always existed. He was here before forever. I can't wait to figure that out someday. But you have to accept the truth of the fact that that's who he is. This is the Jesus we worship. The problem we have is that we have managed and recreated the image of Jesus, and that's why I think our worship is diluted, weakened, because we are not worshiping the Almighty God who also loves you and is personal with you. How is it that the creator of all things knows me, Stephen, and holds me in his hand? I want you to understand something. He doesn't hold all of humanity. He holds each of us individually in his hand and knows us. Zephaniah 3.17, you may not be familiar with this, an amazing passage in verse 17. It says, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Now I want you to listen. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. You know how you quiet? One of the ways you quiet a crying baby? Cuddle them. Love them. Nourish them. That's exactly what God is saying. He will rejoice over you with singing. God, the Lord your God, will rejoice over you with singing. Let me say that again. Does that hit you? He sings over you. Now, if you know the Hebrew, where it says he takes great delight in you, then you would know that that word in the verb for Hebrew also translates, and he will dance over you. No, he's not dancing on top of you. He's dancing over you as a celebration. So when God sees you, Steve, he breaks out in song. And he starts dancing. 
which I can't do. <laughs> this knee won't let me yet. But can you, can you see that? Here comes Jesus, and he says, Steve, and he starts singing and dancing. And then he gives you this most amazing embrace that you could imagine, and you just melt. Because this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the supreme, almighty God. And now your brain is confused because he's acting so loving, so caring. At the same time, you're thinking, and you created all things. And you're hugging me. And you're singing over me. And you're dancing over me. Oy vey. <clears throat> what do you do with that? But here's my idea. You worship what else can you do but worship God? i got to tell you something. I wrote this down in my notes, and I was thinking about this, and I said, can I, and honestly, that literally takes my breath away. The imagine, imagining that, understanding that. You know, First John says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are? Jesus is a consuming fire. He comes and just takes over. He wants to, but he does it in such a way of grace and love. Habakkuk 3.2 says, Lord, I, I've, heard of your, I've heard of your fame. You are almighty. You are king. You are Lord. You're, you're just majestic, and I stand in awe of your deeds. I love what he says, renew them in our day, and in our time make them known. Can you and I pray that? Can we pray Habakkuk 3, 2, renew them in our day, in 2023, and in our time on the Kitsnap Peninsula, and make them known? Make what known? his fame, his deeds, the things that we would stand in awe of. In case you're wondering, he was doing that. Look at the miracles around you. Hebrews 12. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be destroyed, let us be thankful. Now, that, I said that too quick. Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be destroyed, let us be thankful. And please God. How do you please God? Well, if you're wondering, here's the answer. Worshiping him with holy fear. Now, fear. Not fear like I'm scared. Fear like I really respect this. Like, Jesus ought to be the most respected person in your life. Of the highest respect that you could imagine. And awe for our God is a consuming fire. Psalm 135 says, Your name... O Lord, endures forever. Your fame, O Lord, is known to every generation. I brought that in because that's part of what we need to do, is to make sure every generation, every generation is known to God. The babies, the toddlers, the elementary school children, the youth, the young adults, the adults who are older than the young adults, the middle age, and the adults who are older than the middle age. They all need to know <laughs> and be known by God. And why? Because we're beloved. 
and were highly favored by Jesus. I want to remind you of, I, I spoke of this at Christmas. It needs to be said again. I don't want you to walk out of here not knowing how loved and how highly favored you are. Ephesians 1.6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So what this is saying is you can't make yourselves accepted. But we are accepted because of the glory of God and the grace of God. See, if you could make yourself accepted, then we would have a problem. There's nothing you can do. This is what God does. But he said that there is praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted. So here's the point. That word right there, you've got to know a little bit of Greek. Because that word is the same word used in Luke one twenty-eight. It's up there. The angel went to her and said, who's her? This is Mary now, right? We're in the Christmas story. And Jesus, and greeting, you who are highly favored, the Lord be with you. Okay, now here's the point. The same Greek word that says highly favored is the same Greek word where it says accepted. Now, can you put the two together with me? The very thing that is said to Mary. Mary was, high, of course she was highly favored. She's the mom of Jesus. Right? Can we say amen to that? Yes. We're in agreement with that. Not to be worshipped, but man, talk about respected. Right? The same word that was spoken to Mary is spoken to you. Can you believe it? That the word that came to Mary, you are highly favored, God says to each one of you, you're more than just special. You're highly favored. Wow. That changes my life. That changes everything about who I am. This is the defining moment when you think about what this means because here's what I want you to understand Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is our worship. And he rejoices over you. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus is the groom. And he's coming for his bride, Revelation 19. And we're reminded again, Jesus came, right? We've talked a lot about his being here the first time, born a baby, grew up. Well, he's coming back again. Case amen to that. He's returning a second time. But let me warn you, the second time is going to be different than the first time. Because when he comes back again, he's coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming back in a way that is so different than the first time he came. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. Now I want you to get this. Simple. It's important to get this. Now, have you ever wondered of all the images that God could have used to explain the relationship we have with him? He chose the marriage relationship. I hope it's obvious to you. Because in a marriage relationship, that's where two human beings have the most private, intimate, tender experience on earth. A a, a healthy marriage is is life-changing. The union of a husband and wife is used to convey the idea of what we're going to have with him in eternity. I mean, we're trying to, I mean, this helped my brain. At least I have something to somewhat image. Isn't it interesting that evil seeks to destroy the concept of marriage? You think that's by accident? Do you realize that evil's working overtime to destroy the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman that God ordained and said, I'm going to explain to you my relationship with you. So in order to understand this, Look at a marriage. It's throughout the Word of God. And so it's not by accident that evil seeks to blow that up and distort it. See, God didn't say, I'm going to cohabitate with you. God didn't say, I'm going to just live with you. God didn't say, we're just going to be good friends with benefits. God didn't say, I'm ever going to divorce you. God didn't say any, he did not use those analogies to help us understand this amazing, wonderful relationship that we have with him. Matter of fact, if you look at, and the image here is a Jewish wedding. I I, I wrote this out for you guys so you can look at it in more detail later, but there's three phases to a Jewish wedding. Phase one is a contractual agreement that takes place where the families of the groom and bride get together, they make arrangements. But it's interesting, I want you to listen to this. The arrangements are not initiated by the bride. The arrangements are initiated by the groom. Accepted by the, by the bride, but the groom goes and pursues the bride. Jesus pursues you. And he says, let's engage in this relationship. The response of the bride was to say yes or no, and then, guess what? Make herself ready for the coming of the groom. We are the bride. Are we making ourselves ready for the coming of the groom? I think that's a challenging other question. The second phase is the groom comes and receives the bride. Here's the crazy part, sometimes unannounced. The groom can drop in because once the contract has been made, signed and agreed upon, if you will, the groom can come anytime. Now, good news is he's, you know, respectful to the plans and everything that's going on, but technically he could come and get his bride any point because they are now in an agreement. And then the third phase is the ceremony and the consummation of the relationship of marriage and the feast and the celebration of a community that brings honor. Now, here's the crazy part. Honor to what the Lord has done. 
not the couple. The couple share in the celebration. They participate as a community, but it isn't about them. I think a lot of weddings today are about the couple, right? I mean, it's all about, you know, the couple, and they're the center of everything. Nothing wrong in having a good wedding. But the focal point is Jesus because of what he has done. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if God has entered into, and God has entered, and you have come into an agreement, you have a covenant with him. And the word is saying, if you will take my son, and you will receive him as your personal Savior, here's what God says, I will make you my own. And that agreement is secure. It's finalized by Jesus Christ on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. Our future is secure. Your your eternity is secure. I want you to walk here knowing no one can take that away from you. You have the security of knowing tomorrow is taken care of if you have received Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting when the language in the Greek talks about eternity and Jesus is talking about it, it's usually in the present tense. He's talking and says, you have eternity right now today. You have eternity right now. Listen, eternity and getting into heaven is not progressive. You don't have to keep working towards it. There's no exam to get in. It happens the minute you come into the agreement that Jesus Christ is the groom in your life. Word says you must be ready at all the time for the Son of Man will come when you least expect it. Forty-nine years ago, I received Jesus Christ and brought him, brought him into my life and believed him to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. That he died for my sin, he rose and was resurrected and ascended, and I received into my life, and my life changed. Here's what I did, is I married Jesus. Now that's going to sound weird. But this is the imagery of what God brings to us. So I think this becomes something I want to challenge you with. Are you married to Jesus right now? Or are you separated? Or are you cohabitating? Or are you just living with him? The difference is commitment and heart. There's a lot of difference. The world is trying to confuse us that somehow all of these are acceptable. But with Jesus, only one thing is acceptable. And you wear a ring that says, I'm owned by Jesus, and no other gods get me. No other ideologies get me. No other values get me. Who has me is Jesus, and everything about Jesus is in me. Can you say amen to that, church? Is that true for you? Are you in that relationship with him? 
Who is Jesus in your life? 